The Smiley Professionals Network presents its first podcast, The Smiley Connection. We'll speak with professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to bring you compelling stories about their career journeys. We'll laugh, we'll learn, and we'll connect. Who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Yalamadatan hello to everyone. It's Reem Merchant, your host. And on today's show, we have Riaz Patel. Riaz Patel is an Emmy-nominated executive producer and director based in Los Angeles, known for transformative TV projects. His work spans multiple networks with shows filmed in 21 countries and distributed globally on platforms like A&E, MTV, Hulu and Netflix. Riaz recently produced the Rad Impact Awards, featuring A-list celebrities and garnering significant online attention. Owing to the depth of content, this podcast will be in two parts. In today's part one, we will focus on Riaz's journey with navigating his life and his purpose in this ever-evolving world. This podcast begins with Riaz discussing how he shifted from medical school and stepping foot into the Hollywood industry, despite all the adversities that he faced through the conflicts in his career and the loneliness, he managed to get his success through perseverance and hard work. In the second part of the podcast, Riaz goes into depth through explaining his startups, the connect effect and the four chais and the purpose of them cultivating a sense of connection and healing in people's lives. This podcast concludes with Riaz transitioning into discussing his journey of faith and maintaining the balance of Deen and Dunya in his life. So stay tuned to the podcast and don't forget to catch part two. Well, uh, delighted to be here. Uh, my name is Riaz and so my professional journey I started on a path towards medicine and I was going to be a psychiatrist you know not not particularly unusual for a smiley boy to be a doctor <laughs> I come from generations of doctors and so that was my path and I was pre-med at university and present the pre-med society and present the psychology honor society and and at the time was really struggling um to accept myself in a variety of ways and I was home studying for finals and a movie came on my parents family were most by myself and the movie shifted the way I saw myself in a, in a profound and lasting way. And so I realized at that point that that medium, that, that, that story that came through that box was so powerful and I wanted to do that. And so I decided after university, I got in an old Volvo and which was in, I was in Philadelphia at the time, graduating from Penn and uh drove across the country to la and i remember my father saying you know you will fail just don't take too long to fail because then you'll be too old for medical school he many years later apologized for that um and decided that this power of entertainment for transformation was something that was really amazing and so i worked my way up i arrived here a graduate from an ivy league school triple honors and and became a bartender just because i didn't know anyone and uh, worked my way up and became a trainee at the William Morris Agency. Um, and it was brutal. It was, there was no accountability at the time. And the sort of the feeling was, if you want to go into entertainment, you will pay your dues. And I remember a stapler being thrown at my head 
I remember being yelled at daily. I remember, you know, one time I entered the main conference room with all the most powerful agents in Hollywood and my agent that I was an assistant to, I handed him a file and he threw it up in the air and said, I don't want this. And I had to crawl between the feet of the agents to gather up the papers. It was so humiliating, but um, I stuck with it. And so now I am what's known as an executive producer um, and director in television. There's an inside baseball terminology we use called, I'm a showrunner, which means that a network would would trust me to run a show that you can have people are executive producers, but they're not showrunners. I'm known as a showrunner means I creatively oversee every aspect of a TV series. And my specialty is uh, nonfiction, means unscripted reality. But what I do is only shows that have positive, authentic transformation. So a lot of shows um, with people with so low self-esteem. I did a series with Super Nanny for TLC. Anything that has a positive psychological transformation through the show, that's what I do. Um, and and I love it. It's It's incredibly fulfilling to know that I go to work every day and I really want to change someone's life in a profound way in a very short period of time. And it's incredibly creative. Some days I'm working at the top of my game creatively. I'm working at the top of my game problem solving. Um, and it can be very rewarding, very, very rewarding. It's also incredibly hard, um, but that's what I do. And uh, I live in Hollywood and my last deal was with NBC Universal where I would create shows for them. You've described some very hard situations while you were progressing in your career path. Can you talk a bit about some key milestones or positive experiences along your professional journey that kept you motivated as you pursued this path? I think it was, I believed in the thing I kept as my North Star, as my compass was, I believe that I have stories to tell that are important. And at the time, you know, I began my profession in the late 90s. I would never walk into a room where there was anyone like me, anyone like us, Smiley's at all. And so I think that was very much my motivating North Star was there are stories that are not being told that I think could resonate deeply with a community that is vastly underserved and not just Muslims, many, many groups were not represented. And so I think at the time there was so much of this um, establishment that was just very much pointing out, you know, there's no one like you, you you don't, you, you don't speak in this meeting. And I just knew that what I wanted to say and what I wanted to do had an audience out there an audience that needed these stories to be told. And so that was very much what was keeping me motivated. And and along the way, there are absolutely horrible people in Hollywood, but there are also some incredibly dynamic and smart. And, you know, the thing about people who work in Hollywood is we are reading everything. We are looking at everything, um, you know, because you never know where the next show or movie is going to come from. And so you end up crossing paths with these really well-read people who you know read articles and magazines and you know are following news stories to see you know is there a kernel in there and so i think finding those peers and i think this is true of every profession you know as you're coming up and you're really going through the paces 
is finding your team, finding those people, whether you work together directly or not, who you will support each other, you are there to vent to each other, and that finding that group as we were making our way through Hollywood in the beginning was the thing that kept me going. It was that group of friends that we just would meet up and say, you won't believe what happened. And the next person's like, I totally believe what happened because it happened to me. And I think I think those relationships are so key no matter what the profession, because anything worth achieving is going to take a lot of work and it's generally going to be hard. And so having company along the way makes it so much easier and so much more enjoyable. And those relationships last forever. And ideally, you all rise together. And I can pick up the phone and call various heads of networks because we started in the trenches together. And so I think those relationships and bucking each other up and believing in each other was very much what kept us going. So when you moved from pre-med to follow this path in Hollywood, aside from it being a very powerful idea and a passion, what were the factors that influenced this choice when it came to your career? I think I really felt, and again, that experience in university where that movie came on and, and shifted the way I felt about myself, I I think I just really believed in the power of entertainment. And I felt like, and I think this is very true today, that there are very few places and spaces that people give up their ego to that they surrender to in in psychology it's called transportation where you where you when you're talking to someone and you give over and you're sort of put yourself in their shoes and so i really felt in so many ways that and i didn't predict where we would go in a screen based world where everything becomes more and more isolated that the need to empathize and the need to connect and the need to humanize each other and to empath that really is so powerful and it's why we're here there's a great um psychologist albert morabian who studied body language and said in all communication, only 90, sorry, only 7% of communication is words. 93% is tone and expression and body language and all those things that we get when we really empathize with someone. And so I think that ability to, to, to give over your ego and to feel that escapism and to feel that empathy is so, so powerful. And so that was very much a factor of why I felt this was a really interesting profession. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't even think media was as powerful when I began the profession as it became, you know, this world where we always have our screens with us. You know, none of none of us are in the Middle East or in Russia, Ukraine. Everything we know about those spaces come from our screens. What edits are we seeing and not seeing? And so I think I believed in the power of storytelling. It has only grown in power exponentially each year. Um, but I thought that a lot of people struggle in isolation and, and entertainment and, you know, those stories really allow people to not feel alone. And I think that's a type of therapy and a very, very accessible one. And I really, really loved that. And so that was something that I believed in. And I come from many generations of doctor. My father, Dr. Rafik Patel, helped create the Aga Khan Medical Center in Karachi. And I think I grew up in a family where you, you part of your your mission here is to look after other people, to help other people, to make other people feel better. And that really has always been a central theme in my work is 
I would like people who go through the experiences of my shows to feel better. I would like the people who are watching these shows to feel better. And so I really believe in that, the impact of that and the importance of that. In many ways, you are a trendsetter. You were in industries where no one looked like you, no one told stories like you did, or no one even knew that stories were missing and the perspective that you brought to the room. At that mm. point, what was it like going against the current, facing this backlash of sorts from family, from society while making this career choice? Now looking back, connecting the dots, where did you find your support to go on? It was so hard. And there were days and weeks and months that I would just think, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing if if my if my parents don't necessarily think I'll succeed, if I don't have a lot of support in the industry? You know, I think we've, you know, and this is true of the smiley community, is you know, we 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 help each other, we elevate each other. And at the time, there were all these groups that would help and elevate each other, and there was no one, no one to call to say, you know, uh, oh Riaz, you're a smiley, you're Muslim, I've got your back. And so it was incredibly isolating and hard. I think there was a lot of support that came from my sisters. I have two older sisters. Well, I think um, they just believed in me always. And I think friends also really believed in me. And I think I just developed this inner voice that I had to really rely on and trust. And, and I remember being in the car driving to and from this horrible, horrible situation at the William Morris Agency. And some days I would I would literally think, okay, if the car crashes, I can be in a hospital for a week and I won't have to go in. It was so horrible. And I just kept thinking the only way through is through it. And that everything I was doing, whether it was unpleasant, even when I failed, it was the step in the right direction. Um, everything I did actively to say, I'm going to try. And it's so much, I'm going to try. I may not get it right. It may lead to nothing, this particular task I'm on. But the willingness to try and keep trying, I think is so important for anyone beginning any journey in any career, is the effort of trying means a lot. That intention carries a lot of weight. And so I think it was just willing to try and willing to move forward each day and and take risks and try different things. And I think that's a piece of advice I give anyone who's young is you may not know the path and some of the things you do may not work. Doesn't matter if you keep trying. The, the trying will set you on a path that will lead you to a place you didn't even know you could go to. For example, when I got into Hollywood, there was no thing as reality TV. I was working in scripted film. I ran the company that produced Gosford Park. We went to the Oscars with that. I ran the company that helped produce Hedwig and the Angry Inch. We went to the Golden Globes and the Tonys with that. And I thought it was scripted. And then this unscripted reality emerged. And I thought, oh my gosh, I can do all the things I want to do of creating entertainment experiences that transform, but I can utilize those on real people and then document that and that becomes a show 
And so that became my career path. That didn't even exist. And so a lot of the times I tell people, you you may end up in a place you don't even know, a profession that may not exist in some ways, but the trying continually will get you to where you need to be, even if you don't even know where that is. I'm going to step a little bit. Um, what was the feeling like when you heard that the projects you worked on, the projects you spearheaded were being nominated to these dream awards that every uh, every person in the films aspires to be a part of? It's a well, it's bittersweet for the in the first half, and it's very sweet in the second half. The first half is bittersweet because I was running the company for someone else. And when momentum started building with Gosford Park, he and I, when I came in, we had a handshake deal. I started this company for him, it was his company, um, that I would get a credit one below him. And there's a whole system of credits, you know, producer, executive producer, associate producer, co-producer, all those is a whole uh, hierarchy. And as Gosford Park started coming together, he said to me, you know what? I think we're not going to give you a credit on this one. We'll do the next one. And I was so heartbroken. And so on the film Gosford Park, you do not see my name even though I ran the company and it was a two-person company at the time. And so I already exited, having developed the script for years, having helped to come together. And so when it was nominated and I saw my boss at the Oscars, it was incredibly hard because I had been denied credit. And a similar thing happened in Hedvig and the Angry Inch, although if you open the original cast CD of Hedvig and the Angry Inch. My name is like the fifth person thanked by the producers. Um, so that was very hard because I had done it for someone else. And I think after that, I realized it's very hard building a company. And the next time I'm not going to do it for someone else, I'm going to do it for me. And so I did. And so the next time a project was nominated for, uh, this one was for an Emmy. Um, I got two Emmy nominations. It was like being a dream. And then you go to the Emmys and both times I wore Kurta pajama because I want to just remind everyone. I'm like, I, I come from somewhere else and my point of view is from somewhere else. And so you're on the red carpet and the flash bulbs and my God, those, those um, Emmy awards are so shiny in person. I don't know what they polish them with, but they're so shiny both times when they say the nominees are and your heart beats out of your chest. Both times I lost to Martha Stewart of all people who wasn't even there. Um, but it was, incredible to believe that I had forged this path. And so I think often the harder the journey, the sweeter the reward. Um, that was magical, those Emmy nominations. And um, and then I got an NAACP image nomination for another show, um, which was also incredible and unexpected. And so when you are in a profession where so much of it relies on your gut, I mean, my job is to walk into a billion dollar network and to say, I've got an idea in my head. And I'd like you to spend millions and millions of dollars on that idea. And the idea will be done. We will edit everything before it ever premieres. So it's an enormous leap of faith they're taking. And so I really have to believe in myself, in the story I'm telling, in the way I'm telling it, and every aspect of it. What do the titles look like in the in the edit bay what is that sound cue no not that cue another cue no it should fade over 10 frames no no let's fade it over 30 frames 
And so when you get to one of those moments where you're nominated, it is incredibly, incredibly satisfying. Um, but I think being a person very type A, it's always like, okay, what next? What next? And I think that sort of hunger is what drives me. You know, what's the next frontier? What's the new thing? Um, but it's, it's, it is incredible. And I would say those two evenings when I was at the Emmys, nominated myself, um, were dreams. And I'll always remember them. Well, the description you just portrayed was so vivid. I almost felt like I was looking at the award myself. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're so shiny, I can't tell you. And and both times, again, I didn't get to hold a statue. Um, but it was still... When they do, it, it's when they say, and the nominees are. I, I cannot tell you how hard your heart starts beating. Um, and then there's this moment, horrible, horrible moment of disappointment. But it still is, you know, to have made it there from driving across the country by myself in a Volvo and not knowing anyone in LA. I was, I was very proud of what I had done. And then, and my family was very proud. And I think my father many years later said to me, you know, he, he apologized and he said, you know, I think any father would be so worried for their son going across the country into a profession where they knew no one they couldn't help in any way. And he said, I just felt so helpless. Um, and I knew how hard it was for you. And so my instinct to protect you was to tell you, don't do it. And he said, you know, that, that, that didn't honor who you were. And I think, you know, a lot of parents, I'm now a parent, my kids are young, they're six and seven. The need to, the wants, the need to protect is so powerful that I completely understood what my father said. And, you know, I think as parents, we try to protect them as much as we can from harm. But, um, but there's a little, little engine inside me, inside my kids that I just have to figure out how to nurture. This is amazing. Your career spans almost two decades now and going strong. Um, what are some of your observations and insights into the industry that uh, you've been so closely associated with? It's, it's fascinating. It really has changed it so much. I mean, we've just come out of two strikes, a writer's strike and an actor's strike. You know, I had um, every year at the end of the year, I have uh, breakfast with my agent. I'm at CAA, the largest agency in the world. She's been with me for many years. And this year she said, uh, she, her head was reeling. She's like, I can't believe how much it's changed. And I think in some ways it's changed for the better that at the time, you know, when I started, there were only so many pathways to get a project made. You either knew how to get into these 10, 12, 15 networks, or you didn't, you know, there was really no other way. You either had to know someone who knew someone to get in the door. Now there's a million ways to create a project. And I think this past year was the first year that uh, ad sales, you know, when you do a television show, you shoot a pilot, it's taken to New York usually, and then they present it in front of advertisers and advertisers spend and say, I'm going to buy that show, I'm not going to buy that show. And that's how shows are picked up or not. Um, and this was the first year, I think, ad sales, more than 50% was spent outside of traditional broadcast models. And 50% was spent in what we call creator projects, which means your YouTubes, you know, your TikToks, where the creator is creating and building their audience rather than pitching a network who's using their infrastructure to bring an audience to a show. And that's a profound shift, you know, that creator-based projects are now 
half, if not slightly more than half of what advertisers spend, because that's where the eyes are. You know, I remember when I did a show for MTV, we would lament if we had, you know, a, a, a 1.1 rating, which was, you know, one and a half million people, you know, one, 1.3 million people. Now MTV is like, we hope to get 200,000. You know, just the audience share of broadcast and cable has shrunk so much. And, and those networks will disappear. They will slowly disappear because right now someone watches a show and they don't really know what the network is. You know, they know the show they like and maybe they saw it on Hulu or Netflix, but they don't really know the network that created it. And so that's a profound shift. I think, you know, mediums like podcasting, you know, who would have thought radio plays essentially would come back, you know, after the 1950s and 60s, you know, there was this whole era of radio and then people went to the visual medium. And then we're so busy, we're cooking or we're, we're cleaning or we're driving. And so the idea of not having to take someone's eyes, but maybe it'll go through the ears. It allows you a much longer attention span. You, know, you go through the eyes, you have milliseconds to get someone's attention. You just go through the ears, you've got a lot more time to tell a story. Um, so I think the shift to creator-based is very interesting. I think, I think an audience really knows what's authentic now. You know, the, resur- the, the big surge of reality that came in the early 2000s was become, because scripted became so terrible. It became so hackneyed and so boring and archetypes were so boring and reality comes and then you have these real dynamics that are nuanced and amazing dialogue that only can become from real people. And that's what scripted really had to shift and say, oh, we better really be creative. And, and it even shows like Modern Family adopted the the, the, the mechanism that we use in reality, which is when you talk to camera, we call it the testimonial. You know, something happens and then you talk to camera and you say what happened. You know, Modern Family used that. Many shows started using that. The Office started using that. Parks and Recreation started using that. A lot of comedies started using a mechanism that was entirely created in the reality world. And so I think now the audiences want real stories that move them. And in a world where you are on your phone, eight to 10 to 12 hours a day is going back and forth between emails, texts, but also TikTok and Instagram and videos and all, something's got to catch you. And so I think the there's a real, there's a respect for the audience that wasn't there in the beginning. It was, it was almost condescending, like, we'll, we'll create something and the audience will love it. Now it's like, we know the audience is very savvy and very aware. And so that's something that I think is very interesting. It really challenges people to be bold and creative and to make bigger take bigger risks, which is fun. That's why I got into it. Um, and so I think it really has shifted exponentially. And where it's going, the economy of entertainment has shifted so much. You know, you, it's almost like you buy a phone and you expect all the content to be free, which which it is. And so that's why you really need to go, well, why it shifted to a creator-based economy where you do get all the content for free. And based on how many views you get, then the advertiser comes in and, and pays the money to the creator. And I think that allows creators to have much more control over the finances. You know, the, both strikes were about the fact that your Netflixes and your Disneys were taking everything in the kitchen sink. And someone who created a show that would have millions of hours of viewership on Netflix was not getting anything. Or if they were getting something that was ridiculous, like $50 in residuals. And so I think the creator is respected a bit more than they were in the old days. It's been great looking at the industry's growth and journey through your eyes. Could you highlight any trends or any innovations that are in the field or where do you see the future looks at? For me, what I feel is is missing and what I've been working on for the past few years 
is experiences that are in person in the real world. That in a screen-based world, we are saturated with content on our screens. We all know this. But it also is because of the algorithms, because of the way content, how content appears before your screen. It's deeply polarizing. It It is anger for profit. The more angry you are, the more you watch the world burning, the more you can't take your eyes away from the screen and more ads slip by and Facebook and all who, who make money off the attention extraction model, the more money they make. So the, the more we lean into screens, the more polarized we are, the more isolated we are, the more lonely we are. And so all of my shows for the past 15, 20 years have been creating authentic experiences for real people. And then cameras would document that. So whether it was a woman who had hated her body for many years, really suffering from body dysmorphia, she would come on set and I would have three days to create these immersive experiences that she would go through that would shift the way she saw herself permanently. And then the cameras would document it. And so that, that ability to create transformative experiences is what I've been doing. And now I realize in a world of screens, those experiences are needed in the real world. And so what I've worked on for the past seven years has been a project called Connect Effect. And I wondered, as I watched people drifting apart from each other, I wanted to see, could I create an entertainment experience, immersive, the kind that you give over your ego to, that you're transported by, that people can go to in the real world, means there's no screen component of this so much as you're in a theater space and you go through this 60-minute show and you end up dropping into this deeply connected state with the rest of the people around you, that each time we do it, we are the show is the audience. We're connecting the audience to each other. And so those experiences, entertainment experiences in the real world that are transformative, I think there's a real market for that. Because A, it's very hard to break through the clutter on your screen. B, is if you create something balanced and connecting, it will never travel as fast and as far as something that's hysterical and polarizing and rageful. And so I think where people go for those experiences has changed. Um, you know, obviously it was a movie theater and there's still obviously a large market for movies, but it has diminished over time. And then it became the screen in your hand. And now I think it's going to be, there's a new market and definitely a need for immersive real world entertainment experiences, um, which is harder for some people to adapt to. If you are a writer who's created shows that you shoot with actors, that's going to be harder for someone like me who's created authentic experiences that are immersive and transformative. It's, it's what I've done anyway. It's just, I'm now not taking cameras and documenting it and then editing that to a show. The actual experience is the show. That's, that's a trend that I really like. And I think it's so needed because people end up feeling so isolated. You know, the last statistics are one in four Americans have no one to talk to and one in two feel alone most of the time. I think in England, it's 20%. Um, I know in Japan, it's very high. And so I think the more that we can have experiences, specifically entertainment experiences that connect us, I think that's what's needed in a new world order of screens. You mentioned Connect Effect. Um, can you talk about some of your passion projects or initiatives that you've been involved in, whether that is inside or outside of work? And how does your uh, project align with your personal and professional interest? It very much aligns with it, that, that everything I've done has been transformative, has ended up leaving people in a more positive state. So Connect Effect is probably my biggest 
project. And we just met with a special advisor to the Surgeon General of the United States. And they know that we're in an epidemic of loneliness and they are struggling for interventions. And so we brought it to them and said, look, this is actionable. It is scalable. It is sustainable. It is entertaining. It, you know, And they really responded. So now we are talking to their engagement team about where to do it. We have five cities where we've done Connect Effect at a major university that has found it deeply transformative for the students. We've now spoken to the government, local government, and are trying to create a venue, a permanent venue, where people can go to drop in on connection through this entertainment methodology. And so I really do think it is going back to my original roots was wanting to be a doctor in some way heal people is now can I create a space where people can feel better who are lonely and isolated, but not necessarily clinically depressed, but where they can go for connection and engagement and laughter and conversation. So that's, that's one. I'm actually doing two projects with the Ismaili um, uh, that I'm now bringing my, my background in entertainment to say, can we create programs that are connecting and entertaining it's connecting and, and educating but also entertaining that uh, you know if you can put the medicine in with the sugar people will take it and so one is a talk show um without a host called four chais where we take four smileys from four continents very different backgrounds and we connect them through this methodology that i've developed in, with connect effect that you know connects people strangers very quickly and then have them have a conversation about the way they see the world from where they are and what sort of things are they struggling with and and it's very connecting to talk to people you know from north america and tajikistan and east africa and europe and they're all saying yes i struggle with this and yes yes this is hard and this is my passion and, and i think we know as a community of smileys that we are very diverse and we're in all these regions but we don't get to meet and media allows us to meet and so that's a passion project of mine is for chais, um, for people meeting, having chai. They actually are, wherever they are, they're sipping a cup of chai and we're sort of virtually connecting them. And then the other is an animated show, a children's animated show, where we're taking a lot of our smiley values and putting it into an entertaining children's animation show that can supplement REC, but also the whole family can watch together. When we when we staffed up the writer's room for that, we didn't bring in just children's writers. We brought in really good writers because we wanted the whole family to watch together. And so I think anything where people are connecting and they are learning from each other and they're brought into a sense of community, you know, that is the most needed thing in the world. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Smiley Connection. And if you are enjoying the show so far, please give us a review and a 5-star rating on the Apple or Google Podcast apps. It takes less than 5 minutes to do that compared to the hours of work that goes into each podcast episode. So we'd be grateful for your time and support. We'd also love to hear your feedback. Reach out to us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Kes Ali. Marketing for this episode was carried out by the stellar Afreen Patni. Our cover art is designed by the skilled Shakil Muhammad. Also, many thanks to Zoa Momin, the head of strategic initiatives at IBM. And lastly, I'd also like to thank the team behind SimonSays.ai, the software that helps the smiley connection get its transcripts.